You are listening to Penn State's Research Unplugged. Today's topic is Galactic Cannibals, How Massive Galaxies Devour Their Neighbors, with Christopher Palma. Now, try to clear your mind of that picture of a person in a lab coat standing in front of a bench, you know, with a Bunsen burner. Try to tell me now, what do you envision when you think of an, ex- an astronomer doing an experiment? H- how does an astronomer do an experiment? Right? So, so I, I point this out all the time. My, my friends who aren't astronomers often think that I work all night every night. That I sleep during the day, and I work nights every night, and then I'm, I'm in front of a telescope night after night after night. And it turns out that that's not the case. And that may have been the case for a good chunk of time 150 years ago, that if you were an astronomer, you were at the observatory night after night. But these days... Even the most active observational research astronomers might spend a couple of weeks total out of, out of any given year at an observatory. Um, anything, so so those, are, those are most of my questions I want to ask. One last one, and then I'm going to switch over to my slides, and I'm going to start showing you the results of, of one of these experiments. So beyond picturing someone at an observatory, at a telescope, can you tell me what do you think an astronomer, what activity do we do? How do we do our experiments? So if, you're, if you picture a chemist, you know, with a beaker stirring it, what does an astronomer do? I think of computer models. Yeah, that's, that's to, to the vast majority of, of astronomers today, what you do is you sit at a computer, but what you're actually doing is you're, you're looking at images. And, and um, you know, when you heard a little bit about my background, one of the things that I do is spend a lot of time talking to um, young students who come to, to Penn State to, to see uh, our little planetarium and to do little activities we've arranged for them. And I try to point out to them that, you know, if you picture a physicist or you picture a chemist or you picture a biologist, you know, let's say you, you want to do plant biology. Well, you know, there's plants out there. You can go get samples of them. You can um, breed them. You can you can talk about controls. You can have a control population and you can have a population you experiment on. So I want you to think about astronomers who work on stars and galaxies. How do I interact with my subjects? And the answer is I don't. I think we, we can claim, you know, in, in, with a perfectly straight face, we are the one <coughs> group of scientists that will never physically manipulate our subjects. Right? I'm not going to touch a star. I'm not going to touch a galaxy. So everything that we know about astronomy comes from, for the most part, and, and you know, it's always tough when you use those absolutes, but for the most part, it's the study of light. So what I'm going to show you is, is a set of images, and, and I'm going to show you some computer models that we've done to try and explain what we see in those images, and I'm going to try and give you a little bit of a feel for how we manipulate those images to try and pull out of them the, the scientific results that, that we'd like. So would you mind lowering the light? So... Um, this, this image that I started out with is just um, uh, years ago when I was first getting started in this. Um, the, the, the professor that I worked with at the University of Virginia, they wrote a story about this work in The Economist magazine, which I was actually kind of interested. I have no idea how The Economist found him, but they had their um, staff illustrator come up with this little image of a, of a galaxy and a knife and fork chewing up its neighbor. Um, we, we use this imagery of galactic cannibals, and, and as I hope to show you, it, it's reasonably accurate. Um, we have, you know, a, a big galaxy actually chewing up its, its neighbor. So just to, to set the stage, I wanted to show you a galaxy. So this is one of my test subjects. You know, this is one of the things that um, when I'm working on research, I'm studying objects like this one. Um, it's often very difficult for us to give presentations on these types of topics because there's nothing analogous to this in our everyday life. Like I can't just say, okay, picture you know, an elephant doing this and, and try to make some analogy between elephants and galaxies because there, there's just no analogy there. So, so to set the stage, what you have to picture is a group of about 100 billion individual particles. And those, those huge number of small particles are actually separated by vast amounts of empty space. So when you look at this picture, 
you see what looks to you like a single coherent object that you could pick up and manipulate, but it's really a sea of individual particles moving around in lots and lots of empty space. And so what we're interested in is when you get multiple of these things together, how do they interact with each other? What happens? And so what I'm going to show you next is the results of some computer models. And I apologize for folks who might have a hard time seeing this. But this is actually a computer simulation where they took two simulated galaxies. So each one of these probably has a million or maybe 10 million particles to represent the stars. And what we see happening is when these two galaxies pass through each other, the individual particles don't collide. I don't want you to picture a bunch of car wrecks happening. Instead, they pass right through each other. But like a boat passing through a river, you get a wake. You have the galaxies pass through each other, and the gravitational interaction between those two galaxies causes the orbits of the stars in them to change. And what used to be two individual pancake-shaped galaxies gets completely distorted into something that's almost unrecognizable compared to the original. This type of interaction, people will refer to it as a galaxy collision or a galaxy merger or a galaxy interaction. And this is not the thing that I'm going to talk about today. This is something, it's sort of a separate subfield. Instead, what I want to talk about is, here's another computer simulation. This shows you a galaxy like our Milky Way. And then what the person who did this did was they simulated a much smaller galaxy. So the difference between the Milky Way and the smaller galaxy is about a million to one. So the mass of the Milky Way is about a million times larger. And what happens is that that little dwarf galaxy orbits around and around the Milky Way. It hardly has any effect on the Milky Way. But the Milky Way essentially just chews it up. And so what we've been interested in is trying to find examples of this process and trying to determine what happens to those stars. When the Milky Way or some other massive galaxy out there just chews up its neighbors and basically tears them to shreds and turns them from a coherent clump of stars into a mess, what happens? Anybody want to hazard a guess? What do you think happens if I have the Milky Way and I have some dwarf galaxy orbiting the Milky Way and the Milky Way just breaks it to pieces? What happens? Where does all of this go? The Milky Way galaxy. The analogy between chewing it up and eating it is a pretty good one. So the Milky Way is a massive galaxy, chews up this dwarf galaxy, breaks it up into its individual constituent pieces, and it absorbs those stars and they become part of the Milky Way. So the reason we got interested in studying this is we were looking at the outermost, most diffuse parts of the Milky Way, and we knew that this process went on and we thought, well, are we getting confused by assuming that all of the stars in the Milky Way originally belonged to it? And we think that here's now, this is an artist's conception. So we actually worked with a person who does scientific visualization for a living, and we asked them to help us do a reasonably scientifically accurate job of picturing what the outer parts of the Milky Way look like. We think that there are roughly, say, a few dozen to a hundred of these dwarf galaxies that used to exist that have been slowly over time destroyed, and their stars have been absorbed into the Milky Way. So we want to know, is the entire outer part of the Milky Way made up of the remnants of these things? Or instead, do they basically just make up a teeny tiny little part of our galaxy? And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we just didn't know the answer to that. How long does it take to digest a galaxy? That's a very good question. So the way I would answer that is to say, how long do you think it takes one of those galaxies to orbit around the Milky Way one time? Anyone want to hazard a guess? 10 million years. That's a good guess. You're off by about a factor of 100. It's more like 2 billion years or so. And so what happens is, if I go back to this 
not this first simulation, but if you go back to this one, you see as it orbits the Milky Way one time, it gets stretched out. When it orbits the second time, it gets stretched out a little bit more. And when it goes around the third time, um, it gets stretched out a little bit more. So each individual galaxy, there will be a relationship between its orbit and how long it takes to get chewed up. And so on average, these things take about a billion years or so to go around the Milky Way once. So something like five billion years to, to destroy them completely. And just to, um, to mention that at any time, if you have a question like that, yell it out. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer all of them. I have a question. Go for it. How, how old is the Milky Way? So how many times can one of these things go around before it gets to you? So our best estimates are that the Milky Way is on the order of 12 and a half or 13 billion years old. And so um, today we see about a dozen of these dwarf galaxies in different stages of this process of being chewed up. Some of them are nearly completely gone. And I'm actually going to show you a, a, another computer visualization of what one of those looks like. We think that over time, the, the ones we see today are, are the remnants. So 90% of them are probably gone. And so um, over those sort of 12 and a half, 13 billion years, it's probably chewed up about, about 100 of them or so. So um, is the size of a galaxy a predictor of how old it is? Are the larger galaxies the older ones? It's related. <laughs> so we, we think that over time, um, so if, if you go back to what I was saying about how, okay, so what happens to those stars? So you have a galaxy that basically destroys this smaller galaxy and absorbs those stars into it. We think that over the history of the universe, galaxies have grown bigger by this process of, we call it a, a, a a bottom-up formation scenario where you have little things that merge to form bigger things. But for the most part, we think that most galaxies formed in the universe at roughly the same time. And so most galaxies are all of the, roughly <laughs> the, the, same, um, the same age. But the, the biggest ones are likely the ones that did form at the very beginning of that epoch of galaxy formation because they've absorbed more galaxies over <coughs> But it's hard to generalize. Background, background information. Why is why uh, are they, do you assume they're all saucer shaped, or why do you show the flying saucers like that? It basically, what do we observe? It's it's empirical. So when we when we use a telescope and we look out at the universe and we just say what shape are galaxies out there, um, it, it depends on their environment. But in some environments, we see mostly those disc shaped galaxies that are flat like a pancake. In other environments, we see more um, elliptical galaxies, which look like uh, um, elongated um, spheres, basically. Not all of them are perfectly spherical. They're, they're more, more football-shaped. But um, the, reason that we, the reason that we represent them that way is that's just how they appear when, when we observe them. Okay, so I, I, this is probably considered bad form. But I'm one of those people that always loves to show the punchline at the very beginning. And so this is it. This is, this is my punchline. And the reason the lights are so low is that, I, I don't know how well you can see it, but this is one of those disk galaxies seen edge on. And if you can see, there's, there's this faint stream. And that is actually the remnants of one of these dwarf galaxies that have been chewed up by this particular spiral galaxy that's something like... Um, Ooh, something like 500 million light years away from us, which sounds like a really impressive number, but basically in, in our backyard as far as galaxies go. Now, this is the one that we found. We just made this image um, not quite a year ago or so, but I want to show you an even more impressive one. This is actually what, what spurred us on to, to pursue this whole line of reasoning. This is an, another galaxy. Again, you can see its edge on, and here, in this case, you can really see this galaxy is completely encircled by a debris trail. So somewhere in this, this faint stream of stuff, there used to be a, a pretty um, tightly bound group of stars that as it's orbited around this galaxy has just been chewed up. And all of those stars over time will slowly get absorbed and, and this, this structure will be erased. So 
millions of years from now, or well, probably more properly, billions of years from now, if you came back, you wouldn't see this this thin ring-shaped structure. Instead, what you would you would just see is a is a faint, diffuse, roughly spherical um, uh, group of stars surrounding this disk. I just want to make one more point about this. This galaxy years ago was considered an oddball. And the reason for that is you can see it, it looks nice and flat. But if you look really closely at the edge, this edge turns up. And at this edge, this edge turns down. And so again, you have to picture galaxies as, as collections of 100 billion particles floating out there in space. And so most of them we see as flat, very flat, disc-shaped objects. And so people noticed the, the bends, and they said, how can you get a flat galaxy to bend in sort of an S-shape like that? And, and this was a real mystery, because when we see those S-shapes a lot of times, we often see them when another galaxy has passed close enough to this thing to, to have some effect on it. And this thing is, there's no other massive galaxy anywhere near it. And so when this was found, it's pretty clear that the, the object that was disrupted, the effect that it had on the galaxy that disrupted it was to cause it to warp a little bit. And so one of the things that I, I when I started this project, I said, you know what, we really need to find more examples of this to, to come back to the argument about statistics. You know, if we want to claim that this is a process that is very common in the universe, we have to find more than one or two or three examples. We'd love to find, you know, a thousand examples. And so the question is, well, where do you start? And so my feeling was where we should start is, well, we, we think this is going on with the Milky Way. We've seen it in a galaxy like this particular one called NGC 5907, so why don't we look for other galaxies like those two, and that's a good place to start. And so I, I ask people, what determines if a galaxy is like the Milky Way or like NGC 5907? And, and anyone want to take a guess at that one? <laughs> that's, that's a pretty technical question, but go ahead. A spiral flat galaxy, and, and in my case, one of the things I said is let's look for one that doesn't have any massive neighbors, so there's not another big galaxy right near it, and has one of these warps in it. But, but the, the sort of facetious answer I give to everybody is what makes a galaxy like the Milky Way and NGC 5907? Because I said so, right? I mean, it, it, that, that's how you have to approach this project is there's no one else out there that's going to tell you that answer. So you have to say what really are the important properties that I should be looking at. And to me, it was an isolated galaxy that had a warp. And so one of the things that I did was I looked out there and I said, okay, how many isolated disk galaxies can we find that are warped? And it turned out there's something like a handful that we could look at. Okay, now I need to gloss over years and years and years of work with just showing you this one little visualization. So this is supposed to represent our Milky Way galaxy. We live here. That yellow um, dot that's far out of scale is where the sun is. And all of these other particles that you see, those are the remnants of an object called the, the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. That thing was discovered in 1994. And when it was discovered, we saw the, this clump, which is what's the, the biggest part that's left of Sagittarius. And it was really a fascinating time to be involved in this field because, uh, uh, you know, that this person found Sagittarius, he reported it to all of us, and he said, wow, Sagittarius looks really weird. It doesn't look like a nice, coherent ball of stars. It looks kind of like a, this really bizarre, elongated smear of stars. And so people started to put together, well, maybe it's breaking up a little bit. And so literally, people spent the next four years looking here and here and here and there, just looking at individual little patches of sky and they found a couple of Sagittarius stars here. And then they found a couple of Sagittarius stars there. And then around 2000 or so, they were able to trace out all the stars in the sky that had properties similar to Sagittarius and found it, it completely encircles the Milky Way. So when, when we made that discovery, that happened at roughly the same time this came out. I was finishing up graduate school. And so I said to, to some of my colleagues, I said, you know, I'm going to be applying for jobs. I need to prove to the, to the faculty 
who are at research universities where I'd like to work, that I have a good scientific question that I want to go after. And I said, you know, one thing I'm really interested in is let's find more examples of this. You know, we see it in NGC 597. We see it in the Milky Way. So let's go out and do that. And in 1999, roughly, I wrote a proposal with a group of my friends, and I said, let's go out to a small telescope and let's just take images of some of these galaxies and let's look for debris streams like that. Go ahead. Just curious to find out, how do you know which of the myriads of stars out there are part of that galaxy? I was purposely going to gloss over that question, but I'm happy to answer it. There's two ways that we can answer that question. Part of it is that we needed the data, right? The first part of that is we need to have observations of a big enough sample of stars that we could actually separate out the Sagittarius stars from the other stars. And the way people started approaching that was doing it piecemeal, looking over here, looking over there. But there was a group of people that put together from the University of Massachusetts what's called an all-sky survey. They built a couple of cameras, and they called it the two-mass project. And with these cameras, they took images of the entire sky, tiled the entire sky. So they actually had data on a huge number of stars. So that was the one thing, was first we needed to have that data. So then the second thing is, okay, out of all of those stars we've imaged, how do we know which ones belong to Sagittarius and which ones don't? And it turns out it's a complete accident of stellar evolution. Stars, their colors and their luminosities change as they age. And it turns out that for Sagittarius, it's got a reasonably unique set of properties so that its stars, as they evolved into their giant phase, their colors and brightnesses are different enough from Milky Way stars that just using the two-mass data, you could separate out, you could say, that star has the color of a Sagittarius star, and that star has the color of a Milky Way star. So if the properties of Sagittarius were a little bit different, that would have been an incredibly painful process, and we wouldn't have been able to do it unless we devoted a massive amount of observation time to it. But we just got lucky that Sagittarius stars were different enough. So now the Milky Way has incorporated some of Sagittarius stars into it. So I'm guessing that will make it even harder now to say which star of a third galaxy, if we were to interact with a third, or if we're looking at another galaxy altogether. So after this happened, after this was published, people started finding, again, sort of the sociology of astronomy is very interesting. The person that I worked with on this project found some hints of this in 1991, and he would go to meetings and he would present his results, and he literally had people laugh at him. And one of the folks who didn't believe this idea at all, admittedly his evidence was sketchy. He had found, I think, a half a dozen stars that appeared to be going the wrong way around the galaxy. And he said the only way when the vast majority of the stars are going this way, and you find a half a dozen stars going that way, they probably came from somewhere else. And so literally this woman at a meeting said to him, how many stars does it take to prove that the Milky Way has swallowed another galaxy? And he just kept at it. He kept finding more and more evidence that showed that this was happening. And so then after this result came out, people started looking at other peculiarities among the stars that had been previously thought to be Milky Way stars, and they said, wow, we can explain this much better if we assume the Milky Way absorbed a third galaxy. And so that started to happen. And the funny thing was the same person who gave him a hard time about his six stars he found in 1991 got up on a stage at a big meeting to present her results about finding yet another galaxy we think was absorbed, and she had, I think, five stars that she was using to bolster her argument. So over time, this went from an idea that was basically scoffed at to one that was so accepted that there was enough evidence that it accumulated that everybody believed it. And to, again, talk a little bit about the sociology of it, I had been used to 
going to meetings and having to defend myself, to present the work that I had been doing on this and saying, look, I know, you know we'd love to have 100 stars, but we only have 10 stars that show this. And I got so used to that, I, I came to Penn State and I, I had taken a job here. And one of the things we often do with, with new people is we ask them to give a presentation about the work they had done at their previous institution. And I, I was so defensive in my talk. I, I was trying to really lay it on thick, like I really believe this and this is why. And after my talk, one of the faculty said, everybody knows that's true. <laughs> and I, yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was interesting to be seeing how that had changed in just a few years. Okay, so um, I'm gonna go through this really quickly because I wanna show you an interesting technique. Um, but basically, we settled on this hypothesis, right? That if the Milky Way galaxy is encircled by stellar debris from a disrupted dwarf galaxy, then there should be other examples out there. And here's this image. This is the first image that came out of that, that one I've shown you with this really, really nice ring. This was the state of the art in 1998. So when you write a proposal to an observatory, you want to tell people that have limited telescope resources to give out. So, so think about that. You, you have a you know, in some cases, a telescope that, and an observatory that costs $100 million to build. And they have so many nights a year to give to astronomers who want to answer all the questions in the universe. So you have to write a proposal to them saying, this is a question that your observatory can address, and this is why I think it should be addressed. And so you have to prove to them that this should be one of, say, the top 20 projects that gets time that year. And so, to be honest, it, it's a little bit frustrating because you... The, the proposal competition process is so fierce, you almost have to know the answer before you even do the project just to convince them. And, and so, you know, one thing that, that's said kind of pejoratively is you never want to be seen as going on a fishing expedition, right? You never want to, if you write a proposal that seems like you don't know that something's out there, you just want to take a bunch of images and see what you can find, you're unlikely to get your time. So the more evidence you can show ahead of time, the better. And, and so um, now I'm going to try and convince you, like I tried to convince them, that I really did know what I was talking about. So here is an image that was taken in 1950, roughly. And, and uh, I, I could probably figure out the exact year. But anyway, taken in 1950 of that same galaxy I've shown you before, NGC 5907. This is the one that has a ring around it. And this, is, this has been digitized. So I have this on my computer, and I can manipulate it in any way I want. Can, can I see a show of hands? How many of you have used the program Photoshop before? I, I knew there would be one hand for sure, but okay, about a dozen hands or so. So Photoshop has a, has a, a set of filters you can apply to images. You can you know, do things like remove red eye, um, you can, but you can do things, for instance, there's a, a thing in there called Gaussian blur, where you can take a very sharp image and you can smear it out. And so what I'm going to show you is essentially a Gaussian blur of this image. So what we did was we, we took all the brightest parts of this image out, and we took all the faintest parts, and we just left the, the, um, the pixels in this image that were roughly the same brightness, and then we smoothed them. And so now here is that, that edge-on galaxy. And can everybody see the ring? And so oh. it... it, it if you, oh, oops, let me go back to here. Now, now to, to help you out, I'm going to show you. Here's the image of it from 1998, and here's the image of it from 2007. So you can see the edge-on galaxy. You can see the ring around it. And if you look in my image, taken 50 years before this discovery was made, just by manipulating it with a program like Photoshop, I was able to bring out that ring. And so what I did was I took this sample of half a dozen galaxies I was interested in, I smeared them out using a Gaussian blur, and if anything looked like it had a little bit of a hint of a stub of light sort of sticking out, I said, okay, that's a good one to look at. And so I, I wrote this proposal to the observatory saying, I found roughly th three or four galaxies that I think show good evidence that they might have a ring around them, so give me some time on your observatory and I'll find them. And, and they believed me. <laughs> so in, in 2000, myself and another graduate student went to uh, an observatory in, in outside of Tucson, Arizona, the Kitt Peak National Observatory, and we had a couple of nights on this telescope, and we looked at several other galaxies like NGC 5907 to see if we could find these rings. 
So I throw this plot in here, and I'm going to come back to this when I sort of laugh at myself later. But I, I, I want to, again, return to this thing we talked about at the very beginning. What do astronomers do? And we talked about you know, going to an observatory and spending your nights there. When I don't want you to think that we spend 365 days a year up all night in an observatory. But during those precious nights that you are at an observatory, every single second that it's dark, you want to be using the telescope. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've worked with some people that have a great sense of humor. And you, know, you, you always sort of rush out from dinner to get to the observatory before it was dark so you were ready. And we'd be eating dinner, and one of my friends would start going, plink, plink, plink. And we'd look at him kind of funny. What are you talking about? That's the sound of photons bouncing off the dome. Come on, time's <laughs> wasted. We need to get out there and, and start observing. And so this plot, what this is, this is time on this axis and, and up here in, in a different set of units. And these are just curves that show um, how much of Earth's atmosphere you're looking through when you look at your object. You want to minimize the amount of atmosphere you're looking through, because the more atmosphere you look through, the worse your images uh, come out. So you, you want to try and observe your object when the, when the curve down here is at its lowest. So here's one of those galaxies, NGC 3044, 3079, and 3432. And they were all observable um, between um, dusk and a couple hours before dawn. So that, that was our plan, was to observe those galaxies. And NGC 4013 is the, is the one I've been showing you. Um, and that one was, was at the end of the night there. We, we, had, a, we had a couple more hours on that. I'm, I'm going to come back to this. But, but I just wanted to point out that when it does come time to be at the observatory, every single second of dark time is precious. The, the, you want to be taking an observation as soon as you can and do back-to-back -back observations from dusk till dawn. And it's, it's things like this that allow us to plan that process. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about the data. You know, when, when you leave an observatory, what do you have? So that's an image of the sky. Can, can anybody tell me, what do you see on that image? You see donuts, right? Can everybody see these little donuts? Uh, oh, the, the big one here? Ah, that's a, that's a really good question. And, and, and I'll, I'll answer it after I show you the punchline to this slide. But I want to come back to, can, can anyone guess what the little donuts are? Water spots. They, they look like water spots. They're, they're not water spots, but they're <laughs> something similar, actually. Um, it turns out that, that the cameras we use these days aren't terribly dissimilar from digital cameras. Um, so we have you know, our digital camera, and there's usually, it, it's inside of a, uh, a metal doer to keep it cooled down, and there's a glass window in the front of that camera. And if you get a dust speck on that glass window, that dust speck will be out of focus, and so you'll get these rings on your image. You can also see that, that big ring on here. It turns out that, that digital cameras aren't perfect. When you take a snapshot with your digital camera, you don't see this, but professional digital photographers who really, really look very closely at their digital images, they'll see this. Every single individual pixel on your detector doesn't detect light with the same efficiency. So what I mean by that is if you shine a light, a uniform light on every pixel of the detector, you won't get a uniformly illuminated chip. Some of the pixels will be brighter than others. And so this is an image of the sky that we took with a very sophisticated digital camera. And then this is the, an image created with that exact same camera. But this time what we did was we illuminated it with a uniform light source. So we could actually tell which parts of the camera respond differently, which parts of the camera have these dust spots on them. And one of the things that astronomers do is we just divide that out. These are digital images. They're basically represented as numbers on a computer. You divide this, this illumination pattern by your original image, and that's what you're left with. You can get rid of a lot of that, um, a lot of that, those, those artifacts in the image um, just by manipulating these on the computer. That's really important because if we, if we just looked at this image, if you're looking for a faint ring of light, you're going to get confused by this bright ring of light that's created by the illumination pattern. So you have to do this very, very carefully 
in order to be able to see the faintest structures on an image. And so, so that, that's one of the techniques that we have to use. And so after spending four nights at, at Kitt Peak Observatory using a, a, a camera that cost about a million dollars or so to build, this is what we saw. So this is the edge of that Edgeon galaxy, and that's, that's what we had. In 2004, after we finished doing those images and, and we spent some time at the computer manipulating them, and, but, but when I say manipulating, I have to be careful. We're not manipulating the data. We're not changing what's there. We're just cleaning the noise out of it. That was, that was 2004. And like I said, I sat in my office and I was patting myself on the back. I said, I found only the third example that we knew at that time of the remnants of a dwarf galaxy that had been devoured by this massive galaxy. And so that's when it, it gets kind of funny. <laughs> so... Like I said a, bit, a, a little while ago, I came up with this idea when I was finishing graduate school. I wrote proposals to come work at universities, and I said, okay, this is a project that I want to pursue. But when you get hired by a university, the person that hires you has projects they want you to do. And so you have to balance the work that, that they've asked you to do with, with your research interests. And the, the person that I worked for, and, and I'm not just saying this because she's sitting here, but it has, is exceptionally generous with letting the, the folks that work as part of her research group spend their time on their interests as well as her interests. Well, even though that was the case, this project, I, I just didn't have the time. I, I was working on a few other things, and so um, the, one of the other folks I worked with, he said, hey, look, there's a group of people that I'm working with that are doing exactly the same thing. They're working on this field. He said, they, they've got some other images. Would you be willing to give them your data and let them publish it? And so I said, sure. I said, I, you know, it's been sitting on my computer for five years, and I just haven't had the time to make the progress on it. And I, I would just love to see this get published. So if they're willing to do it, it's all theirs. So they, they produced this image. We found this little arc, and they said, okay, how did you do it? How, why did you pick NGC 4013? Why not any of the other millions of galaxies. So I went through that whole argument of, well, I looked at them all real closely, I Gaussian blurred them, and I picked out any galaxy that looked like it was a good target. Well, let, let's go back to this plot for a second. Did anybody notice anything a little bit strange about, about this plot that I showed you before? So, so. Yeah, thank you very much. It, that's, you're, you're on the right track. So these three, you can, the way you can tell, right, so you can see the labels, this is NGC 3432, 3079, 3044. I had a computer program that calculated these curves and produced the plot for me. So we, we got to the observatory and we had planned to observe these three objects, and the last one that we had planned to observe was, was not a good time to observe, and there was still one, two and a half hours of dark time. And I had promised the other graduate student who came with me, I had said, hey, look, the objects I want to look at, um, I have two and a half hours at the end of the night that I'm not going to use. So I said, you can have the rest of my time, and you can look at your stuff. So we got to the observatory, and he, he got the time that he wanted. He observed his objects, completely different objects. We still had some time left. So he said, oh, what should we do? We've still got some time. And I said, oh, I'll just pick out another galaxy. I drew this line in by hand. So I was at the observatory. I was on the mountain. I had my three very carefully picked out targets that I had chosen very, very carefully because I knew they had rings around them. And it turned out we had an extra hour or so of time at the end of the night. And I just decided, what the heck, let's throw this one in. And we'll look at it, too. Maybe, maybe something will happen with that one. And so I, I drew in that curve. And, and of course, 3044, no ring. 3079, no ring. 3432, no ring. The one we threw in there, just for the heck of it, that's the one that we found the ring around. And, and so working, <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you how stupid I felt <laughs> sitting in my office. I, I had just written this email to to some folks I've only met in person a few times, and I said, oh, I, this really careful process to pick out these targets, and here's my description of the process. 
And then he said, oh, well, can you send me that image where you blurred it, where you can see the ring? And I looked for it and looked for it. And that's when it, oh, sorry. That's when it occurred to me that, that's when it occurred to me that I didn't have one of those Gaussian blurred images for that galaxy because I never made one because I threw it in at the last second. And it just was a completely random choice. And so we wrote this paper that's in press now. Oops, sorry about that. So here's a paper that we submitted in January of this year, the discovery of a giant stellar tidal stream around the disk galaxy NGC 4013. And we had to admit in that paper that it was essentially serendipity. It was luck. I mean, that doesn't invalidate the result, right? I mean, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it's kind of funny that after all of that care and planning, the three that we felt confident about didn't show anything, and the one we just picked randomly is the one that actually had the stream. And so I'll answer your question, and then I'll say one last thing about this. Was it really luck? I mean, didn't you have an intuition? You're right. It wasn't entirely luck because NGC 4013 is an isolated spiral galaxy. It is a little bit warped at the ends. So it met two out of the three criteria. It was just the third one that it didn't meet. But at the same time, had we not had an extra hour of time at the end of the night, I never would have looked at it. It wasn't even a backup plan to look at that. We made that decision on the fly. So the last thing I want to point out is that one of the other things that's going on in astronomy today is the projects are getting bigger and bigger. And so years ago, universities like Penn State had access to telescopes that had mirrors about the same size as these tables. And most of the astronomical community was making discoveries with small telescopes. As we pushed and pushed and pushed the limits of what we're trying to discover, the most distant objects, the faintest objects, I mean, this galaxy is very, very faint. It takes a reasonably sized telescope just to image this galaxy. The stars that make up this debris stream around it are something like, oh, I figured this out at one point. So they're something like, at its brightest, I think this may be a million times fainter at the brightest point in the stream than the brightest part of the central part of this galaxy. And so that's why finding these streams is so difficult. It's because the galaxies are very bright, and the contrast between the brightness of the galaxy and the stream is so large. So making observations like this is really, really challenging. And we used a moderately sized telescope, one that's not, you know, wasn't a telescope that's, you know, only been possible the last 10 years. But we were using a million-dollar class camera. What made our project doable, where I found that, where I showed you the black and white image where you could barely make out the stream there, that was a million-dollar camera that made that discovery possible. Well, when we published the paper, my colleagues from Europe sent me this image. They said, hey, look, we've got a better image of this galaxy, and you can see the stream clear as day, and that's the one we're going to publish. And I said, oh, that's great. Where did it come from? Anyone want to take a guess where this image came from? That's a very good guess. Does anybody know how much Hubble costs? NASA actually doesn't like to talk too much about how much Hubble costs, but it's on the order of billions of dollars. So this is not a Hubble image. This is not an image that was taken with a million-dollar camera. This was taken by a guy who lives in California that built an observatory in his backyard and does astronomy in his spare time. So the amateur astronomy community, they have access to telescopes that 100 years ago were the cutting-edge telescopes. So they're about 100 years behind us in terms of telescopes, but the instrumentation, those digital cameras that amateur astronomers have access to, are quite capable for $5,000 roughly 
or, or if you're you know willing to spend ten thousand dollars, you can actually buy a digital camera that's not terribly much worse than that million dollar camera we use. The difference between amateurs and professionals is that we're constrained in how much time we have, right? I, I had a couple nights on that Kit Peak telescope. This guy, anytime it's clear in his backyard, he could go out there and just keep trying, wait until the conditions were pristine, the best possible night to, to make this image. And, and he, he made this image, and that other one I showed you of, uh, of NGC 5907 came from this guy, R.J. Gabaney. And, and what's even funnier is, you know, this, this paper that we wrote, the images that, that are in that paper were this one and, and that one um, were taken by this guy. I've never met him in person. It, it was uh, uh, the, the folks I worked with in Europe found him somehow by email, and they corresponded with him. They told him where the galaxy was. He created the image. And at some point after we published the paper, I sent him an email, and I said, hey, thanks. <laughs> like, like, this image is fantastic. And, and, and he was uh, really excited as an amateur astronomer doing this for fun to be able to contribute to a, a, a professional research project. Is he out in the desert? Um, that's a good question. Uh, you know, to be honest, I forget. I, I can look it up. Like I said, I, I had one email conversation with, with him, so I, I honestly don't know for sure. We have about five minutes for some more questions. If you, um, are we ready to raise the and, Yeah, go ahead. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and raise the lights. And, and thank you very much. And if you would... So, so right, so the, the way this process works, when we, when we talk about galactic cannibalism, 
it requires a, a mass discrepancy, right? So you have a big galaxy, and then you have a small galaxy, and, and the process we refer to as cannibalism is the, the massive galaxy shredding its, its dwarf neighbors. The Milky Way is a massive galaxy, so um, it's not destined to be shredded because there isn't a more massive galaxy out there. But we have essentially a twin. So, so if you go back to that first animation I showed you of the two disk galaxies passing through each other and disturbing each other, here's the Milky Way, Andromeda, our, our twin galaxy, is um, very distant away from us right now, but we're on a collision course. And so the best estimates right now are that in two billion years, the Milky Way and Andromeda will go through that process of merging. And, and we're likely to... When that process is over, there won't be a distinct Milky Way in Andromeda. There'll, there'll be a single um, galaxy left behind that's completely different in appearance than, than the two. Now, now, the interesting thing is you can ask, well, what happens to the sun? And for the most part, the sun will remain unchanged. Like, we, you know, we won't be destroyed in that process. Yeah. <laughs> but it's two billion years. Yeah, we're worried about that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know why the Gaussian blur process didn't work? So, so why didn't it? Um, so, so I mean, it, it, it worked, right? What I saw was I saw little structures that appeared to be perhaps the base of a ring, but there's there's any number of things that could be sort of faint, diffuse light that could mislead you into thinking that there was a ring there. And so, so I mean, that that whole process was speculation. Was if I you know, I do this to NGC 5907, I can recover the ring. So maybe I can find other rings in that way. And, and I'm not, I'm convinced that I, what I did find was other, what's called low surface brightness stuff. It just wasn't, it wasn't the remnants of a ring. It, was, um, it, it, it could have been any number of things. One example for existence, for one example, for instance, <laughs> is there, there are clouds of gas in the Milky Way that we refer to as galactic cirrus. And, and they can actually look a lot like a ring. You can have a, a, a cloud of very faint, low luminosity light that belongs to the Milky Way. And if you see it in projection against one of these distant objects, you can be confused. So, so it could have been something like that. I think we'll have to let that be our last question. And join me for in thanking Chris. <laughs>